All right. Well, now that that's on, we welcome welcome you as we look into Revelation chapter 19. Again, just a reminder, we're closing out very soon the book of Revelation, and I'm trying to accomplish that before we really get into the Christmas season. And uh, uh, we have 19, 20, 21, and 22, four more chapters to go. I am going to let Pastor Kevin take a message in two weeks, so we'll interrupt the flow of the book of Revelation for one week. For me, it's final week. Um, I got a class that I'm taking on marketing. Love it. Not really. But anyways, uh, so I have a lot of papers due in a couple of weeks. So we kind of worked this out since I've been returned to school. I figured out that the week of finals is good for me not to have to teach on a Sunday. And it just works better. And uh, gives me time to concentrate on my studies. And they're good. They're good. People keep asking me, why? You're so old. Why in the world would you want to take classes again? That's usually the point that they're getting at. It's helping me learn. It, it's just, it is. It's helping me learn and uh, in a lot of different subjects, which is good just to kind of keep the brain fresh. You know, old men can get stuck in their ways, so it's helping me to not be in a rut, that if you stay in a rut long enough, becomes a grave, and I don't want to do that. Today we're looking at Revelation chapter 19, titled from the passage where they cry out, Amen, Alleluia. And we find, I think it's really wonderful, and we have in the Old Testament, Alleluia with an H, and I might not say them both, they're kind of so the same. The Greek is actually taking it directly from the Hebrew word, and we take it directly from the Hebrew and Greek words when we say hallelujah or alleluia. And it's really the phrase of, of praise the Lord. So it's two Hebrew words combined to proclaim praise the Lord. So, amen, hallelujah, true, praise the Lord. Uh, We would translate it out that way. We could translate it out that word. Truly, truly, Jesus, when we read of him saying, amen, amen, truly, truly, the same sense, same meaning. So, amen, there's a finality in it. Hallelujah, the Lord is doing his work. And that's where we find ourselves in Revelation 19, I believe, a wonderful passage as we see the seven years of tribulation coming to a completion and the kings of the earth and their armies along with the Antichrist and the false prophet gather to make war against our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And while war is breaking out upon the earth, the heavens erupt in praise. See, the advantage there in the heavenlies is that they know the end of the story. They know the final outcome. The advantage of us in the church is that the Lord has given us a glimpse of the final outcome, the end of the story. It's why we can walk in the darkness of this world and have hope in Jesus Christ because he has given us prophecies concerning the last days that should keep the church attuned to the events that's going on in our world right now. 
I heard this morning a message I was listening to, um, actually listening to Friday's show with David Fiorazzo and a pastor that he had on there. And he just talked about the generational sin that was found in the nation of Israel. And he took it into four generations as he was talking about the nation of Israel. And we'd see the cycle of sins. If you want to see and read about cycle of sin, the fall away from God, read the book of Judges. It happens over and over again in the book of Judges where the people would um, love the Lord, serve the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so he would say, the pastor this morning, the first generation loved the Lord. The second generation had apathy toward the Lord. The third generation fell away. And the fourth generation went into slavery and bondage. And he related that prophetically to where he believes we're at in the United States between the third and fourth generation. We've spent our uh, apathy toward God and the Lord kicking him out of our schools. This pastor didn't say anything about this, but we know what's been going on, how we've raised up a godless generation that now no longer believes in the Lord and we're in that place of near bondage. And I believe we sense that going on. But in the process of all that, as believers in Jesus Christ, we know that that's the heart of fallen man. And we'll always go through cycles in our lives. But Jesus Christ has paid the price of our sin, as we've already noted through receiving communion this morning. And so heaven has the advantage, breaks out in worship, because they know that Christ is the victor. We as Christians also should understand that Jesus Christ has won the victory. Though we may go through trials and tribulation while on this earth, ultimately Christ is victorious over all the earth. So today we look at a passage entitled, Amen, Hallelujah. I said Hallelujah, Hallelujah. No H on the Greek. Anyways, you kind of get stuck in a rut. There I am. Revelation chapter 19, we notice in verses 1 through 10 that heaven breaks out in worship. In verses 11 through 16, he who is faithful and true. And 17 through 21, we read about the battle of Armageddon. And so I want to go ahead and read, let's see, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to ask God to bless the teaching of his word, also to bless the offering, the gifts that the Lord allows to be given to this fellowship. And then we'll get into the teaching of God's word this morning. Looking at Revelation chapter 19, reading verses 1 through 5. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, and they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And then the voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And so, Father, we do ask that you would, Lord, let your Spirit guide us through the teaching of this passage today. Be with my mouth, Lord, as you use it as an instrument to relay your truth 
to all of us this day, to myself as well. Lord, we want to be your students. And I pray, Lord, that if there are those who have been walking as if we have been defeated, help us to know, Lord, that we can walk in the victory of Christ this day, even though we're in the midst of the battle. We also ask, Lord, for the gifts that are given to this church. Lord, for the work that you've called us to do, we thank you. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to have wisdom as we use the gifts given to this place for the glory of your kingdom here upon this earth. We pray in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. So here we find in verses 1 through Five, a great multitude in heaven. They're breaking out in worship. Now, it's important that we find here in Revelation chapter 19, the Greek word alleluia is only found here in Revelation 19 in all the New Testament. We don't find it anywhere else in the New Testament, but we find it four times here in the book of Revelation in chapter 19. It comes from the Hebrew word, actually two Hebrew words. I've already mentioned this. Alleluia, or some would say Jah, but praise Yah or praise the Lord, we would translate it as in the book of Psalms, we find it occurring 24 times where they cry out praise the Lord, sometimes at the beginning of the psalm, sometimes at the end of the psalm. There's only one exception where praise the Lord either comes at the beginning or the end. The one exception is Psalm 135.3, where it's found a little deeper in the verses. But consider this, when they wrote the Psalms, David wasn't going like we read it. He wasn't, let's see, Psalm 32, verse 1. What should I write right here? He was just writing to the Lord. There was no verse marks, but it does say in Psalm 135, verse 3, it gives us that Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Sometimes in the Psalms, we find at the beginning and the end where they're crying out, praise the Lord. And the worshipers, they confess that salvation, glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. This salvation speaks about this deliverance or the Lord preserving us, saving us. It comes through the name of Jesus Christ as the apostles preached there in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, saying, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name than Jesus by which we must be saved. This goes against much of what is taught in our country and other parts of our world today, but especially here in the United States where there are those who would teach that there are many roads that lead to heaven. And there are some churches that also try to acknowledge this same thing. But for churches who try to acknowledge that there is any other way than Jesus Christ to be saved, then they have become a false witness of Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear. No other name under heaven by which men must be saved. They proclaim not only salvation, but glory. The Greek word is doxa. It means a majesty or a glory. And also that there's honor, a word that speaks about the value or the honor that's 
due to the Lord Jesus Christ that God himself belongs glory, honor, and salvation. In Hebrews 2, verse 7 and also verse 9, it tells us, you have made him, speaking about Jesus, you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. But we see Jesus, the author of Hebrews tells us, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The sacrifice that Jesus Christ paid there upon the cross is able to cover everyone who comes to the Lord. He has, we find that there is salvation, there's glory and honor, but also power. Deutimus in the Greek is the word, speaks about strength, ability, power that is of God himself. One day, the Bible says in Luke 21, 27, and speaking about the enemies of God, then they will see the Son of Man coming in power and great glory. One day, the enemies of God, those who do not even believe that God exists, they'll see a mighty miracle of God. They themselves will see the Son of Man coming in power and great glory. And we get a glimpse of that given to us here in Revelation 19 today. Therefore, since salvation, glory, honor, and power belong to God and Christ alone, this causes the Lord's judgment to be true and righteous as we see here in our text. That His judgment is true. His judgment is righteous. The Greek word translated as true speaks about that which is real or that which is genuine. It is not a counterfeit. We have many who try to speak forth a counterfeit truth today. The Antichrist will be all about that. He'll spin lies so much that the world will be convinced that the lies are true. Scripture again talks about a day coming when that which is considered good will be viewed as evil and that which is evil will be viewed as good. And I believe that we are in those days today. You stand for truth and the word of God. You stand to say, I dare to say in our world today that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well, that's deemed as evil, ridiculous by the world because the world knows for sure that this world has evolved and that there was no God who created this world. So you're viewed as a counterfeit and the world is viewed as truth when in reality we have the truth and what they preach is counterfeit. If you dare to say that God created male and female and he created them in his own image, male and female, he created them, two sexes, well, the world knows at this point the last count I saw a few months ago was 112 different sexes that, yeah, it's hard to even, really? And just what, two weeks ago on Passports Now, there is the sex 
X now, the first passport has been issued, male, female, or X. They're just an X. But again, if you stand upon that truth, you proclaim it on your social media page, you might be taken off social media. They don't want to hear the word of God. Here we find truth, that which is real, that which is genuine, opposed to that which is counterfeit. It's God because he is all-knowing. He is able to judge in truth. He is able to judge in righteousness because he knows all things. The word of God tells us in Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, for the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even in to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the hearts. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him who is truth, who is righteous. Righteous speaks about without prejudice, no partiality. You know that one can have truth and not act righteously, but God is a God of truth and righteousness. According to Moses, he wrote there in Deuteronomy 32.4, He is our rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of truth without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. So what did the great harlot do to merit the judgment of God? Well, the word of God tells us that she corrupted the earth with her fornication and that she shed the blood of the saints of God. So the judgment that came against the great harlot because she corrupted the whole earth with her fornication, but also because she shed the blood of the saints of God. In Revelation 17 and 18, the great harlot seduces the nations with the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And this caused the kings of the earth to commit fornication with her while the merchants of the earth were made rich through the abundance of her luxury. Lurking behind the great harlot, we find that there are demons. Every foul spirit, every unclean and hated bird, she is evil personified who becomes drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ. All these things we have learned from Revelation chapters 17 and 18. And no wonder the Lord calls her in those chapters the mother of all harlots, the abomination of the earth. But the people cried out, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up from the earth forever. And the four living creatures, we find them falling down and worshiping the Lord. Once again, the 24 elders casting their crowns, worshiping the Lord, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And the voice coming from the throne, verse 5, saying, Praise our God, all you servants and all who fear him, both small and great. Heaven erupts in worship. The earth is in turmoil, but heaven erupts in worship. Why? Because they know the end of the story. They know that Jesus Christ has gained the victory through his work upon the cross. And they know that Jesus Christ now is preparing to claim his bride. In Psalm 106, 48, we find this amen, 
hallelujah in the Hebrew, where it says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise the Lord. That should be our response in worshiping God. And so the marriage of the Lamb comes in verses 6 through 9 as we read. And I heard, as it were, a great voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous act of the saints. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Here in verses 6 through 9, John is given a glimpse of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That time has come, a great multitude worshiping the Lord, crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. A great multitude whom John describes as many waters, as great thunderings. When we were in South Sudan, I was there with a construction missionary team, but they gave us a day off to see the sites, and they took us out, and it was uh, quite a day. And they took us to one of the tributary heads of the Blue Nile. It was a, a rapid that, from our vantage point, just a, seemed to appear out of nowhere. And so it wasn't like a huge waterfall that we could see coming down this mountainside. We looked up a little bit, and the water just came through strong, so loud that we had to shout to speak to one another. The water was so loud. John is saying the many voices here in heaven, so loud like a great multitude shouting out, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. They're shouting out a declaration of God's divine attributes that God who holds sway over all things, God the Almighty. The marriage supper of the Lamb and the second coming of Christ kind of merging together here in this passage of Scripture. And the cry to let us be glad, to rejoice, to give Him glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. Now, as we read historically about the Jewish wedding ceremonies, in biblical times we find that there were three basic periods. There was the betrothal period. As we come into Christmas, we'll learn about the betrothal period with Mary and Joseph. And the betrothal period was entered into with a legal contract. And it usually lasted for a year. But the difference, not like our engagement uh, that we have here in the Western society where uh, a girl receives a ring from her betrothed, we might say, that she is given a ring and, you know, the wedding is coming they were considered in the betrothal period legally married except for two things. They did not live together and the marriage was not yet consummated. 
During that year, the groom would be preparing a home for the bride. And when the house was ready, he would come at any time. It was announced by the wedding parade that would come to fetch the bride. She did not know the day of the groom's arrival. Didn't send out invitations to prepare that this time next year, we're on this date, be ready, we're having a wedding. No, it was when the groom was ready. All right, guys, he would get his groomsmen. They would form this parade and they would show up on that day of consummation. The second part of that, that the groom would come with his friends to the bride's home and sweep her away. And the groom, the bride, the bridal party, their friends would return to the groom's home and celebrate with dancing and singing. And once they arrived, the couple was ushered into the bridal chamber where the marriage was consummated. Sounds very strange to us. But after the consummation, they would come out and then the marriage supper would take place. There would be the feast that would take place. And it wouldn't last for a day. It could last for up to a week with people coming and going in celebration. And it's a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ and his bride for his church. The betrothal period, we are bound to Christ by his gift of salvation that he obtained through his work upon the cross. Jesus now is in heaven preparing a place for us. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 2, in my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not tell you, but I go to prepare a place for you. Right now, we're in that betrothal period. The Lord is preparing a place for us. But the marriage being consummated, the Lord coming, whether he comes for us one by one or through the rapture of the church where he calls his bride home, Jesus again promising in John 14, 3, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may also be. And then the marriage supper that we're reading about here in the text, that celebration that the church has with the groom, Jesus Christ. We celebrate as the bride of Christ how is it, though, that we obtain the bridal apparel? Well, we obtain this through the work of Jesus Christ, through Christ alone. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and without blemish, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who gave himself for us as the church. He gave himself for us. He washes us through his blood, washed through the water of his word. I believe that the proclamation of the Word of God is a type of washing that we experience. When we hear the Word of God being proclaimed, we are being washed by the water of His Word. You want to be washed by the water of God's Word? Then in the morning when you wake up, pick up the Word of God and just read devotionally. You're being washed by the water of God's Word. He cleanses us. 
So I found this little four-line piece, and I believe it came from me. Usually I document if it comes from someone else. But for the life of me, I can't be sure. So this could be an original Pinnell thought, or might have ripped it off from someone. The theme, though, is in Scripture itself. Although he found us marred in sin, he took us and cleansed us from within. He sees us not as we see ourselves, but as his bride adorned by him. I think it's a Pinnell original. I could be wrong. Somebody correct me if you've ever heard these words. Although he found us marred in sin, he took us and cleansed us from within. He sees us not as we see ourselves, but as his bride adorned by him. And being arrayed in fine linen, which consists of our righteous acts, it's seen in two ways. First, our righteous acts are the good things that we do while on this earth, that The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that the Lord will judge the good and the bad that we do. But also, our righteousness refers to that imputed righteousness that Christ himself has put upon us. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He made him, God made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 10, John being overcome by all that he had seen, he fell at the feet of the messenger to worship the messenger. But the messenger said to John, Revelation 19.10, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant. And of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John's heavenly tour guide, he he began to worship him. And the tour guide said, oh, don't do that. I'm just a fellow servant. Worship God, because Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Jesus Christ is the central theme of all Scripture. All prophecy in some way points to Jesus. He is the spirit of prophecy. Hebrews 10.7 tells us, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It was written of me to do your will, O God. In the volume of the book, the very word of God himself, written of Jesus Christ to do the work of God his Father. And truly blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's also faithful and true. We read in our second point, beginning in verses 11 through 13. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. He saw heaven open and behold Jesus coming on a white horse. Now this is Jesus coming at his second coming. 
It's different than the first coming. If you remember, when Jesus came the first time, he came in stealth. Yes, there was prophecy written about him, but very few even understood the words of prophecy of to be ready, to be prepared of Jesus' first coming. They had a sense that God was about to do something, but they didn't have enough sense to know that the Lord had actually come. They had this idea that something was going on. He came in stealth at the first time through the virgin birth. But at the second time, all heaven will proclaim his power and great glory. At his triumphal entry, Jesus came riding lowly on a donkey's colt. But on the second time, he's on this white stallion. He's coming as the one who has already conquered sin. And he did so through his work upon the cross. He comes the second time with the armies of heaven to reclaim his dominion upon the earth. And Jesus is seen sitting on this white horse. He's called faithful and true. He is called in Revelation 1.5, the faithful witness. He is called he who is true in Revelation 3.7. He is called faithful and true, the faithful and true witness in Revelation 3.14. Jesus judges and makes war in righteousness because he is righteous. His eyes are like a flame of fire. It speaks about the purity of his gaze. He has on his head many crowns. In the Bible, in the Greek New Testament, we find two different Greek words that are translated as crown. The first is called stephanos. It's that wreath that was placed in the Olympics, the early Olympic Games, when they would place that garland upon the head of a winner of the athlete. It's the same word that is used to speak about the crown of thorns that was placed upon the head of Jesus Christ, a Stephanos crown. It was a victor's crown, but it was made of earthly things. But the diadem always in the New Testament, this Greek word referring to kingly deity. Here Jesus is crowned with many diadems. In Hebrews 2.9 it tells us, and we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And the author of Hebrews is actually pulling that from Psalm 8 verse 5. He just adds a few extra words in there, includes Jesus in it, but we find the same thing. We see him who is crowned a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. And although there are many different names for Jesus in the Bible, here we find that there is a name that no one knows except for Christ himself. But the name of Jesus Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, it tells us that therefore God has highly exalted him, giving him a name that is above every other, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in the heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth. At the name of Jesus every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
And while we often think of Jesus' blood that was shed upon the cross here at the second coming, when he comes with power and great glory, we discover that this is the blood of the wicked. He comes as a victor, as the Bible tells us in Isaiah 63, verses 2 through 5, where the prophet, as the Lord shows him the Lord's second coming, he says, Why is your apparel red? and your garments like one who treads the winepress. And the response is this, Isaiah 63, 3. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood was sprinkled upon my garment. I have stained all my robes, for in the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, by my own arm brought salvation for me. My own fury, it sustained me. Jesus Christ himself is the victor. He himself has paid the price. And when he comes a second time, he comes as the victor, crowned with many diadems. He is the word of God, as it tells us finally there that There's a name written upon him, the Word of God. Jesus Christ is the Word of God, as John 1.1 tells us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He has a sword and a rod in verses 14 through 16. As we continue, it says, And the armies in heaven are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he would strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You've seen in the news recently that some people think it's fashionable to have Phrases written on their clothing, nothing new. The Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to come and he's going to have King of Kings and Lord of Lords written on his clothing. He's going to come with the armies of heaven. Jude tells us about a prophecy that came from Enoch, the seventh from Adam, Jude tells us in Jude 14 and 15, saying that he prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in ungodly ways of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him the lord is coming jude giving us a prophecy of enoch who the bible tells us that he walked with god and was no more because the lord took him enoch prophesied of the Lord's second coming before he even came the first time, saying he's coming with ten thousands, plural, of his saints. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-five thirty-one, when the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the holy angels with him, then he will sit down on the throne of his glory. And regarding the armies of heaven, they're clothed in white linen, perhaps speaking about us as believers being clothed in the apparel that has been given to us through the blood of Jesus Christ, as the Bible tells us in Revelation 7:14, that those who came out of the 
tribulation that they washed their robes and made them white through the blood of the Lamb. But as the Lord goes forth, he judges by the sword of his mouth. He strikes the nations. Verse 15, he himself rules them with the rod of iron as he treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of God Almighty. The Bible tells us as believers in Jesus Christ in Romans 8.37 that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And in Psalm 3 verse 8 and again in Revelation 7 verse 10 that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is the Lord's battle. He alone is the victor. For it is Jesus Christ who will strike the nations with the sword that comes from his mouth. It's Jesus Christ who will rule them with a rod and tread them in the winepress of the fierceness of his wrath. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the word of God is living and powerful, is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, to the discerner of the thoughts, the intents of the hearts. On his robe we find on his thigh is written the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings only found six times this phrase in the Bible. Twice it is accredited to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, once to Artaxerxes, and three times it's ascribed to Jesus as king of kings and lord of lords. Regarding Jesus as the king of kings and lord of lords, Paul, when he's closing out his first letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, verses 14 through 16, Paul writes, that you keep his commandments without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. He will manifest in his own time, he who is blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen nor can see, to him be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Paul reminding Timothy that the Lord Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the question is this, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords your Savior? Have you given your heart to Jesus Christ? It is my hope that you have. And we close out in the last few verses in verses 17 through 21. We find here that great supper of God, the battle of Armageddon. We read together in verses 17 through 19. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So the battle of Armageddon being called together, God calling all the birds that fly in the sky to come to gather together that they might feast upon this great feast 
of the flesh of kings and of their captains, their mighty men, their horses, the flesh of all peoples, whether free or slave or small or great. The battle of Armageddon, this site of this final battle at the end of the age, where the world gathers together to battle against God himself, where Jesus Christ comes and returns victoriously. From Daniel 11, it appears that the Antichrist comes to Armageddon to try to maintain his control over all the earth. And initially, the nations gather to make war against the Antichrist, but then they end up forming alliances to go against the one who they view as the greater enemy, and that is of God. In Daniel 11, 44 and 45, it tells us, But when news comes from the east and the north shall trouble him, therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and to annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the sea and the glorious mountain, yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. This is actually talking about the Antichrist. He goes forth with great fury to destroy and to annihilate many. He'll plant his tent between the sea and the glorious mountain, but at his end, no one will help him, and he will come to an end. After the seven years of tribulation, the whole earth will continue in their rebellion against God. Their impenitent hearts, their hardened hearts, as the Bible speaks about the hearts of mankind in Romans 2, verses 5 and 6, where it says, according to the hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the judgments of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. We have impenitent hearts. We have hard hearts. We're born into this state but it's the Lord Jesus Christ who can soften our hearts to help us to better serve and to love him. So the beast was captured, verse 20, with the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Jesus first captures the beast and his false prophet. He cast them alive into the lake of fire. These two men being possessed by unclean spirits, the Antichrist possessed by Satan, the false prophet possessed by other demonic forces, cast alive into the lake of fire a thousand years before the final judgment of all things. Therefore, they receive a greater judgment. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceed from his mouth. Verse 21, who sat on the horse and the birds were filled with their flesh. Jesus, destroying the rest with the sword of his mouth, speaks about the power of his word. Second Thessalonians 2.8, we read, And the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth, destroy with the brightness of his coming. Perhaps one of the reasons the birds are gathered to have this great feast is to cleanse the earth from the carnage after this battle of Armageddon. 
For the Lord will set up a kingdom and will rule upon this earth for a thousand years. We know this as his millennial reign upon the earth. And the Bible tells us in Daniel 12, verses 11 and 12, from that time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days, an additional 45 days mentioned in Scripture, believed to be this time of judgment where the Lord will judge and he will set his sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left and he will judge all nations and to the sheep the Lord Jesus Christ will say in Matthew 25 verses 34 and through 36 to the sheep he will say come you blessed of my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for I was hungry and you gave me food I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. But to the, to the goats on his left hand, Jesus says, Matthew 25, 41 and 43, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment. But the righteous to everlasting life. Everyone must choose whether they stand with Christ or with Satan. As we come into Revelation chapter 20, we'll learn of Satan being locked into the bottomless pit for a thousand year period. It will coincide with the millennial reign of Christ, but after that thousand years, Satan will be released once again and rebellion will take place. And it's amazing, and we'll look at this next week, but the Lord will rule upon this earth for a thousand years and yet still the heart of man will be wrapped in sin for many. When Satan is released, they too will join in rebellion for one final rebellion against God. It really tells us what the Lord said before the flood of Noah, where the Lord said in Genesis 6-5, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. Having unrepented hearts is why we need the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And the only way that we are atoned for is through the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. Let's go ahead and stand. Here at Calvary Chapel of Lake Villa, we have a church motto that says, Believe, Receive, Grow, and Go. And I would just like to uh, go through our church motto and then uh, close us in prayer as the worship team comes. Uh, after we do the church motto, they can come up. And then while they're playing the last song, I'll be down front for prayer if you have a prayer need. Last week we had someone come forward after church and uh, he hadn't walked to the front of the church yet, so he hadn't seen the prayer benches. It's like, oh, that's what you were talking about. So come and visit all the way up front sometimes. It's not that far away. But we do have a place for people to kneel and pray if you'd like to 
close out the service in prayer to the Lord, our God, and just take time to pray with you and Christ yourself. Or if you'd like me to pray with you, I'll be down front for you as well. But before we get to that, our church motto. We have a church motto that says, believe, receive, grow, and go. And the believe is connected to, and we say together, Hebrews 11:6. but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11:6. Those who come to God must first believe that God is. But you also have to receive Jesus Christ. We say together, Romans 5:17. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Romans 5:17. Not only merely believing that God is, but receiving the gift of his Son, Jesus Christ, as the Lord and Savior of your life. Once saved, we need to grow in our faith. We say together, 2 Peter 3.18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. 2 Peter 3.18. Lord, may you help us continue to grow in your grace and in your knowledge concerning Jesus. And finally, as we grow, we have to go. We say together, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Matthew 28:19 and 20. For those who are listening through the radio or through um, social media, please, if you have questions, if you have questions, you can email us at cclv at comcast.net. We'd love to correspond with you. cclv at comcast.net. Also, our church's webpage at cclv.org. There's information about our church. There's messages that you can listen to. The past revelation studies are found there. Also, uh, if you have a prayer need, you can submit a prayer request, and you can do so anonymously there at cclv.org forward slash prayer. This coming Wednesday, we're going to be looking at Genesis 44 and 45, Sent to Preserve Life, the title of that message. This coming Wednesday, Genesis 44 and 45. Again, we're going to close out in prayer and a final song of worship. If you do, if you're here, have a prayer need, you would like to pray, the prayer benches are here for you. If you'd like me to pray with you, I'll be down front for you as well. Father, we thank you for this time you've given us to worship you. Oh, Lord Jesus, a lot of information that we have taken in today. But the one thing, Lord, that we need to remember, that you are coming again. And Lord, that we should prepare our lives for your second coming. That preparation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Through the work, Lord Jesus, that you did on, upon the cross, your death, burial, 
resurrection, your ascension to the right hand of the Father. You have done all. You've paid it all there at the cross. By stripes, Lord, we are healed. Through your blood, Lord, we are cleansed. So help us, Lord, to be the church, holy and pure, as you've called us to be in these last days, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.